Hi, I'm Rob Dietz. I'm Asher Miller. And I'm Jason Bradford. Welcome to Crazy Town, where Black Friday meets the Black Death. The topic of today's episode is competition for attention. And please stay tuned for a perceptive interview with Jenny O'Dell. Guys, I want to start with an apology. Today. If you if you uh, if you just cut the cheese, I'm not going to smell it. We're distance, you know. That's, that's not, not the apology. Okay, but the apology is to you, Jace. Oh, what? I want to apologize. It took me like eight hours to respond to uh, that email that you sent oh. when you said that your your car broke down, you're stuck <laughs> on the side of the road. Right. You sent me this message. Yeah. And you asked if I could help you out and pick you up. Okay. Um. Yeah, I'm well, sorry. I. You don't seem to remember doing that, Jason. Well, I, he's got a point. This happens to me, too, where I, I actually think with instant communication, like, why aren't they responding? Why aren't they responding? Well, I, I'm actually glad that you apologized to Jason. I was feeling a little left out, but that's, this means you respond immediately to all my emails. <laughs> well, so if you were to guess how many unread emails are sitting in my inbox, how many would you guess? Oh. 4.78 trillion <laughs> it's a well, little high. i don't know because i i get a lot of stuff where i don't delete it and just sits there but it's obviously something but ad- did you read it no it's like an ad or whatever i, I can okay. tell from the subject like fuck, fuck that i have no idea you, you don't know how many you have no. or you don't know i have no idea it's it's somewhere Thousands. more than Thousands. than three i'm guessing I've got four thousand one hundred twenty-two unread emails That's in my inbox. This is this is like That's um, reasonable. This is like oh, how, good. I feel better. <laughs> now. This is like yeah. how many social media friends you have? How how many unread emails do you have, Jason? My, I've got six thousand eight hundred twenty. I'm trying to seek status here. No, no, no. My wife Kirsten, <laughs> yeah. she would be breaking out of hives at the thought really? of this. Like her, she cleans not it. only does she not have any unread emails in her inbox after yeah. a day. She has no emails at all in her inbox. She, everything gets sorted immediately. Sort of, wow. Well, let's let's talk about how many inboxes we have now, too. <laughs> right. That's true. That's impressive. You can probably divide people into categories by how they manage email. In my defense, I don't think it's just about categorization. It's about all, yeah, all the distractions we have being yeah. inundated with so many things all the time. You know? I don't yeah. know if you guys can relate to that. Totally. I, I can relate a little bit, I think. I mean, I'm a very, very focused individual, as you can tell by all the uh, pop oh, yeah. culture-addled crap that I spew at you guys. <laughs> but, uh, okay, so the other day, I was actually working on this podcast. Not this episode, but uh, an upcoming episode. And so I'm, you know, I'm doing the research, I'm diving in, and I'm on the internet. And I need a little break, so I, I turned over to YouTube for a second. And, uh, <laughs> a second, that yeah, doesn't Well, so I found... Uh, this video of near-death experiences. <laughs> so it's not people who actually died. It had a lot of views, like, I don't know, like 20 million views or something. So I like, oh, it's got to be good. And it's a, it was like a 10-minute compilation of people almost getting whacked. Like, <laughs> like these two guys are chasing a grizzly bear in the snow on snowmobiles. Yeah, when the grizzly they're bear, chasing the grizzly? Yeah. What like idiots. I know, totally. They got the GoPro camera Being on assholes. their head. Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah. And it, I, you almost wish the grizzly bear. <laughs> exactly. was, it turned on him, swung its paw, and they even slowed the video down. You see the paw just barely go over the top of the <laughs> camera. <laughs> So, oh, karma. That's a good yeah. one. Dash karma cam had... videos are the best. Well, that's the thing. There there were hundreds of near misses in traffic and stuff. And, and it, yeah. you know, you got the, the Russian dash cam is especially <laughs> good. Yeah. 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 I, I don't know what happened. I think their insurance industry yes. is so 
new over there that everybody has to prove what happens in a traffic accident or something. So you woke up like three days later, like coming out of this. uh, So it turns out there are like 80 of these compilations. And you watched every single one of them. Well, I I mean, let's say it was a lot more than I intended to before I got back to uh, the task at hand recording this podcast. Yeah, you're on uh, company time. Oh no, 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 no. I wouldn't my boss is over here. (laughs) Shut up. (laughs) Um Yeah, well so I I bring this up not just to apologize to you, Jason. Okay. I'm glad that Yeah, I yeah. You didn't get you know that's fine. You didn't get killed, you know, as you were like uh filming a ride, you know, back. Um no, I'm bringing it up because I want to talk about what I think is another hidden driver. And we, we spent a lot of time on this podcast talking about how blind mainstream ec- economics is about the role of energy and other environmental resources like soil and you know stable climate and all that. They <laughs> tend to see them as just for their value as an input in, into the global economy, right? Their dollar value. Sure. And, and they sort of assume like, well, you know, if that resource like fossil fuels, for example, gets scarce. Or food. Or food, yeah. You just replace it with something else, right. right? Yeah. Well, I want to talk about a different scarce resource that can't be replaced, and that is our attention, mm. our capacity to focus on things. That is a finite resource. Yeah, and that's what economics is all about. How do you apportion finite or scarce resources amongst various competing ends? Right. Our, our time, like our just our lifetime, how much time we have in our life. So I guess attention is what you're fo- what you're spending your time. Focusing on or paying attention to, like uh, yeah. like watching near death yeah. videos for <laughs> yeah. hours on end, I would mean, get you, you a lot closer to death. <laughs> you could have been scratching your dog's, you know, head or or smiling at your wife, planting or, a tree, or, yeah, plant, yeah, planting, doing something or learning more about the world. But instead. Hey, I learned a lot about the world. <laughs> How dangerous it is. <laughs> yeah. You learn about a lot about Russian traffic. Don't uh, don't jump out of airplanes. You cancel I your wingsuit that. order. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, well, the one thing that that I notice about attention scarcity and, and the problems that we have with it is it's it's not like it's new, right? I mean, no. when we were kids, uh, you had you know, television, you had things competing for our attention well before we had all the social media and YouTube and all that. But, you know, you can even go back in history and look at stuff like the printing press. I mean, suddenly you you had the ability to spread information around that, that you never had before. So people's people's attention have been getting cut up, but it seems like we're on a really massive acceleration path. Oh, my gosh. It's just crazy. I just... I just hard to imagine like the day where you know oh the town crier is now out there speaking let's let's all gather around <laughs> oh, Jason man you you would have been a good town crier yeah. I think this you know we could have got you a three cornered hat and uh, and a bell and put you out Jason on the Jason spends a lot of his time crying <laughs> every day don't yeah you? I mean think about it it's just hard to imagine but pre literature oh, well, I, I think they're always competing you know there's always been competition we talk you're just saying rob a scarce resource right and and uh, that's what the field of economic studies is like how do you manage that well people have always had to manage their attention their yes. focus and there's all, there's always been demands for those things and competing demands for those things so even before there was access to information through the form of the written word or even the printing press or whatever the 
people had to allocate their time either to growing food or taking care of their kids or whatever right. it is. I mean, that's always been a reality for people. But um, it's definitely then accelerating. So just the advance of technology, there was a, what's the thing where you did the telegraph telegraph wire. Then suddenly you could get information from one part of the world to the other quickly. Right. And so, yeah. And then pamphleteering. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, fuck off, Thomas Paine. You messed up our attention span with your your stupid pamphlets. And then somebody figured out how to make like how to how to have the 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 printing press turn over rapidly, so you could get you could you could do newspapers, right? You could do rapid typesetting. Sure. And so suddenly that's a big yeah. Deal. I mean, yes, there's been these technological advances that have allowed us to disseminate information more broadly and more of it. But obviously, what you know. We're really talking about something different now with the, yeah. with the internet. Oh, it's gotten right. to the point of stupidity with stuff like podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I was. I mean, wasn't it? It's like a hundred years ago, radio started taking off or something, right? It's, it hasn't been that long, even where you can have broadcast radio, right? Yeah, right. That's just it's just shocking. You know, I, I, and maybe I've even talked about this on the podcast before, but my dad was born in in 1945, mm-hmm. and he was somebody who. Uh, just had a mind for science from from a very early age. He was born that way. Mm-hmm. Incredible curiosity, loved science. He would get to go to the library on you know on a weekly basis and check out science books. Yeah. You know, and then he would look forward every week to listen to this one half hour long radio show that was a, a science show. Right. So every, he would have to wait every week yeah. to listen for half an hour. And he was talking to me. My dad was actually very involved in the growth of the internet. And he was just talking to me about how miraculous it was that my kids could follow their curiosity and find anything right. that it, they wanted. It, whatever. You know. And it, it's true. It's there's true. like this incredible gains, you know, in terms of our access to information. Well, but there's another side to it, which yeah. is right. this competition for our attention. I, well, think about your dad waiting for that show and what thoughts he might have been processing or coming up with in right. the intervening time. Like, that's something that, you know, instead now I'm like watching 12 YouTube videos, asking over email sure. some professor, going, you know, all over the place where, I don't know, it, it, it's an interesting comparison. When I was in college, I spent three weeks trying to sell encyclopedias door to door. Like physical, it's like, it, it, they used to be actually books that were printed out. There was like 30, 30 of them, you know. I don't uh, know what you're talking so, about. <laughs> so my family had the Encyclopedia Britannica yeah. collection. And I used to sit, when I was bored, I would sit, you know, on the, on the ground in the living room. I would grab whatever it was, right. N through N, you know, and, and sit there and just flip, flip through it. I, I feel like we've talked about this because I had the Britannica as well, and my friend had the World Book, which I you had to go look at the World Book because it had color plates right. of yes. dogs and flags and yeah. and the human circulatory system and stuff like that. <laughs> we're such nerds. We are so nerds <laughs> and old. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. maybe there is something about that that flipping pages and randomly finding stuff you weren't even thinking about, just that you happen to be perusing, or the tactileness of it. Or the ability that you had to seek it out, you know, there's a little extra effort involved. And you just wonder if that that makes that information a little more salient to you. Or sticky. Yeah, sticky, maybe sticky. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, let's, let's just take a quick second and just think about the scale of information that we now have access to and what people are spending their time doing now in this age of the internet. They're listening to us. 
Thank God. So yes. when they just tuned out. <laughs> um, 9.3 billion people listen to Crazy Town every episode. More people than exist. <laughs> um, so just, just a couple of quick stats here. In 2019, so a couple of years ago, this has probably ballooned since then. Oh, yeah. How much time do you think the average person on Earth, this is global, right, spent on social media? Uh, I love these game show questions. Per day? Per, per day. Per okay, day. per day. Each person on Earth spent 12 years each On each average? Day. You're good at math, Rob. <laughs> you're, you're great at math. Well, this is hard because I don't know how many people are on social media. Maybe half the planet's on social media, and yep. each of those might spend uh, an We're hour. We're over 4 billion an people hour. on the internet now. Close to 4 billion have mobile phones. Yeah. Most of those are, have access to social media. Yeah, an hour. It's 153 minutes That's a day. That's too much. That's too much. 153 <laughs> minutes. Oh, gosh. That is a, that is a big chunk of time. That's I mean, more than 60% more than, than in 2013, right? So it's just growing. So I don't, it was, in 2013, like it was an hour. It's not like they have more time in the day I'm stuck to in 2013. use. It's not like we're now at 26 hours, 27 <laughs> hours in a day. You know? I feel like that would make me 153 minutes dumber per day. <laughs> I don't know. I, um, is that too harsh? Like, You're pretty dumb to begin with. I, I am, but I, I feel like the more time I spend, I, I, I end up watching stuff like near-death experience videos. I, I'm not going to... Quiz you and make you look stupid, like uh, like I shared it. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna run through some additional stats that are that are that are wowness. Okay, please. Okay, every minute, 200 million emails are sent. It's kind of old fashioned technology now, but you know right. that's still a lot. I just sent 150 million just, just now. to me. Yeah. 4.7 million videos are watched on YouTube every minute. Feel like a solid contributor there as 4. well. 7 million. <laughs> and 4.2 million Google searches happen every minute. Oh. Those are all people like is this little spot on my on my hand cancer? Is that the kind of thing <laughs> they're searching for? It, it it's it is pretty incredible how how quickly that's risen and how many people use it and and I mean I don't want to sit here and just say it's it's all bad, right? I mean or or that Obviously, it's competing for your attention, but it's it is. There are a lot of cool aspects to it. The yeah. ability to find out something, learn something, learn a skill. So it's uh, like everything. It's such a mixed bag of is this a good thing or a bad thing. One of the things that's not talked a lot about in our circles is, or enough about, I would say, is you, you sometimes hear people talking about the information age, and you know if everything. If everything is done sort of using the internet, the internet of things, we can get more efficient, mm. we can use less resources, the economy will switch from being all about, <laughs> you know, material throughput yeah. to other things. You're that's, killing me. That's my favorite, is, the materialist information economy. Yeah, right? Someday, <laughs> if you want to hear me rant, we'll talk about, you know, Rifkin and his, his Let's go to a data center bullshit. and talk about that. So. Not only are people spending all their time uploading videos, watching videos, tweeting, doing all this this stuff, all this stuff gets stored and then it gets duplicated in places. So I, I was trying to look up how much data is actually stored out there, you know, and how has that changed? How much right? data are stored? Sorry, excuse me. <laughs> how much data are stored? The grammar uh, police have spoken or has spoken. I'm going to throw some, some terms at you that I bet are new to you and okay. maybe are to our listeners, okay? So PricewaterhouseCooper has estimated that there were 4.4 zettabytes of data in 2019. And that number will grow to 175 zettabytes by 2025. So wow. in, in less than five years. 
So uh, how, does this have anything to do with Catherine Zeta Jones? Yes, that's that's a new unit of measurement. Oh my God, it's. I think uh, uh, a Zeta byte. Yeah, I mean it's it's got to be bigger than a gigabyte, obviously, but uh, no terabytes, no idea what terabytes. that is. Are terabytes bigger than gigabytes? I think so. Terabytes yeah. are bigger than gigabytes. Okay, so I'll tell you, a, a zettabyte is only one point one trillion gigabytes. Okay, so that might trillion be trillion gigabytes. So one point one billion I, terabytes. You, you lost me at a trillion. I think I don't even know how big I know, that it's, number it's is. It's impossible <laughs> to. Oh, uh, it's just it's 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 just an economic stimulus package. Right, right. <laughs> it would take you about two billion years. You lost me at billion. To download 175 <laughs> zettabytes. Oh, oh. Well, is that all? Two billion years? Good. I'm glad that I'll be uploaded to the cloud so that I can complete that task. Some- but the point of that is not just the, the sheer amount. Of course, you know, and our listeners will know this. That actually does take real resources in the real world to store, right? I yeah. mean, people talk about the cloud. It's not literally some data floating in the clouds in our atmosphere. Right. This, this is like real physical shit. It, being stored somewhere. I wonder if the sun's still going to be yellow in two billion years. <laughs> right, it'll be a gas giant. Uh, there, Start there, downloading, you'll find. There's out. actual crossover here with the whole energy blindness idea, right? Like we we sort of think the information economy. I'm using the air quotes now. Is some magical thing that doesn't require any yeah. resources, and I, you're exactly right. That that much data uh, requires a lot of resources. Once you get into the zettabyte realm, yeah, <laughs> no. there's resources. Yeah, and, and and of course we could talk, we could spend a lot of time talking about, you know, the real world imp- you know, uh impacts of the information age. But but again, the reason I bring this all up is that all that data is competing for our attention, competing for our, our focus. And there's a real consequence of that. And it's not well, you hurry up, get to the point then, please. Okay, I'm getting to the point. You're going to lay some consequences on us, aren't yeah, you? Yeah, don't beat around the bush. going to treat you like my kids. <laughs> um, you know, people have actually been warning about this. There's a guy named Michael Goldhaber, who's a uh, theoretical physicist. He's still around. He lives in the Bay Area somewhere. He cut to the chase? Back in 1997. <laughs> a long time ago. Many, many, many moons ago. Yeah. He was actually warning about what would happen with all of this information and all these competing things looking for for our attention on the internet. It's really fascinating when you look back at the things he talked about because a lot of what he was warning about totally came came to 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 fruition just in terms of like thinking about the power dynamics, the things that people would resort to 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 capture our attention, to get our focus. Like put you in a headlock and say, look at this. Look Give at me a nuggie. <laughs> look, look, look now. <laughs> well, you can go even a lot further back than than 1997, if you go uh, to the super dark ages, like around the time the three of us were born in mm. the uh, early 70s, uh, or sorry, I'm Jason, late yeah. 60, uh, summer of 69 or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, <laughs> if you go back there, you actually had an economist named Herbert Simon who, who coined the term attention economy. And, and he actually came up, he was a good coiner of terms is that a did i just coin that term it's called a meme yeah he he came up with the idea of satisficing meaning when you have so much so many choices and so many things vying for your attention you kind of use this process of sort of mixing up a satisfaction with with something that suffices You, you you don't always get to the best selection so anyway this guy he he came up with this stuff and uh, i want to read you guys a quote if i may Okay. Okay. He says, 
In an information-rich world, the wealth of information means a dearth of something else, a scarcity of whatever it is that information consumes. What information consumes is rather obvious. It consumes the attention of its recipients. Hence, a wealth of information creates a poverty of attention and a need to allocate that attention efficiently among the overabundance of information sources that might consume it. So that's a little bit, uh, what would we call it, like uh, Byzantine weaving around, but but there's... Well, he wrote that in a time when people could actually follow the whole train of thought. <laughs> Those are big words. That's a lo- yeah. That was a lot. Like back then, you could actually like now it's like uh, TLDR like on that quote. Yeah, I, I have to. I have to tell you, uh, if like on the postcarbon site when we post articles or, or yeah. things in there, we've got a tool that that helps us try to figure out what's going to make it most optimized for search engine searches. Yeah. And this this tool, this little plugin, tells us. You know, it gives us a score rating. It's actually smiley faces. So we're constantly getting these very red, frowny faces. <laughs> Why? Because our sentences are too long okay. and our words are too complex. We, we don't speak like advertisers. Exactly. I have a friend who used to work for USA Today. And he basically, he's like, okay, he's like, we screwed this all up. He says, we wrote to the fifth grade level, yeah. right? And people loved it. <laughs> Short articles. Think about Trump. Yeah. Trump's success is like talking to people at a second grade level, really. I mean, short senses, just these tweets in all caps yelling so, at people. So really what we got to say is when information goes up, attention goes down. Is that what, yeah, uh, that's amazing. what Simon was saying? Interesting. Now, I remember, you know, walking through, I try not to do this anymore. It's depressing. Sometimes I have to. But you go to like a major grocery store and you walk through the checkout line and there's those those rags like uh, World News or whatever that have like an oh, like, like the, El- the Inquirer. That yeah, kind of yeah. Stuff. Like, you know, Elvia, Elvis tabloids. is alien. You're talking about there tabloids. You go. Yeah, like Elvis is still alive. Someone has an alien baby. You know, this sort of stuff. Yeah. And uh, so there's this weird form also of trying to like just be sensationalist to grab your attention, right? So that's been out there too. I, that's I, that's a tactic. I never even see them. I just see the Mentos and the M and M's. So yeah. what you're talking about, Jason, is that's an example of sensationalism. And I think your point is that that that's been around for a while. Yes, but definitely happening on the internet. Now, yes, right? it's even getting with more, more and competition more. for people's attention, more sensationalistic. And I was just talking about that with Trump. Yeah, right? it's like uh, sensationalist yeah. comments. Well, yeah. in, in, Outra- outlandish stuff is like sells. Right, and clickbait is the new tabloid, right? Yeah. I mean, it sends you to these articles that are ridiculous. So you got so you got to write to the second grade level, and you've got to just tell outlandish, mostly fabricated stories in order to get through anymore. Right, we're screwed. Uh, how's this show going to go anywhere? There's another thing I think that's that it's a consequence that I, I, I find fascinating and, and worrisome and I think maybe a bit under the radar, which is, you guys familiar with the sort of the 80-20 rule? Yes. No. So maybe you can explain <laughs> it, Jason. No, I can't remember. Okay. So, so 80-20 rule is just the idea that it's like 20... 80%, 20%. Yeah. So- well, 20% of the things out there get 80% of the attention. That's what I meant. Okay. I, I like how we just caught Jason in a pretending to know moment. That's fun. Well, I heard about it, but I, I didn't feel like I'd be articulate. So my point is, I actually think it's more like a 99 to 1. Um, 99% to 1%? Yeah, which is, think, think about it. You see these trends on the internet. You see them with podcasting. 
Yeah. You see them with, I actually think with book sales. Yes. Where 1% what's out there is actually commanding 99%. Right, of the sales. Of the sales attention. attention. And partly it's that there's so much more that's out there, right? Right. So, so many more books being published because you could self-publish now. Yeah, not enough podcasts though. uh, (laughs) So many podcasts, you know, growing by leaps and bounds, but... Only like one percent of the podcasts are getting this disproportionate amount of of attention. Yeah, you know, yeah. And, and what that happens is, and actually, Goldhaber really warned about this: is that you get a consolidation of power when there's competition for this scarce resource, which is attention, and there's so much power in capturing that attention. It tends to be that that people that hold power figure out a way to maintain that power. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And, and right. you're actually seeing that now where. Talking about podcasting, you got Bruce Springsteen uh, Barack and Barack Obama. Obama launching a new podcast. Entering our space. You know? Well, so I mean, I, ah. I, I have a friend who uh, he has a lament that in the 80s and 90s, he, he called himself a mid-level author, mm-hmm. meaning he was writing books and he, he actually got a reasonable salary from doing that. And he can't do it anymore oh. because because of this this consolidation it's like the stars superstars all write the books and yeah. and make all the money and get all the readers and so his books can't achieve that level and he he doesn't feel like he's had a drop in quality or anything it's just a structural change in the Mm-hmm. In the way information's delivered. I can't even break through now as an Instagram influencer. <laughs> yes, that's right. Instagram. You can use uh, those filters better. Okay. Thank yeah. you. I, I need some feedback. You you are lacking compared to Cristiano Ronaldo. You know how many Instagram okay, uh, you have followers to tell me, he's got? You have got? to tell me who that is. Oh, good God. Uh, okay. <laughs> Ronaldo is one of the best soccer players in the world. So he's like the Roger Federer uh, of you soccer? Just, some people would say he is the best. You started. Yes, I know. Some would even say greatest of all time. But okay. uh, yeah, he's he's this. Uh, he's a very suave, good-looking soccer player who scores a lot of goals. He he can kick balls really hard. Okay. Can he? Can he <laughs> serve? How's his serve? Uh, you know, I don't know. This is not a tennis podcast. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so how many fo- let's let's go back game show style how yeah. many followers does he have on instagram more than i do yes he he has 205 million followers it's like the population of indonesia or something like that <laughs> i think there's only four countries with uh with more people in them than, okay, than india china, china united states yeah it's like maybe indonesia <laughs> right, right. so if he ran for like president of the planet you know what I mean? Yeah. He could probably win. He's got he's got a good start. He's yeah. got a yeah. So, you know, you, you talk about the ability of somebody like that who's good at kicking balls. Right. Uh, <laughs> right. He he is he's like super influential. Whereas, you know, you got you got other people whose ideas you really want to get out there. Like in this podcast we've talked about Herman Daly, who's kind of the Oh yeah, has he got a good account? <laughs> well, you know, he's one of the the you founders. See the way Herman poses on Instagram. It's he's always showing off his bling. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. He can kick an economic theory really hard. Uh, I mean, he's one of the founders of ecological economics. Right. He's written some some good books on yeah. it. He's I think he he's influenced people who know of him and find his stuff. But he he has exactly zero followers. He needs on to Instagram. learn how to use hashtags. Yeah. Right. Right. You know? right. Well, I think you know what what's interesting is like they talk about the supernormal stimuli of the modern world. 
and and uh what it just re- just reminded me of a ronaldo uh <laughs> picture when you said that super normal stimuli <laughs> so you, ronaldo got a bronze statue put up of him a, a few years back yeah so there was a bronze statue on the college campus i went to of benjamin franklin and he's sitting on a bench yeah and all the people who walk by the bench, they like rub them on the head. Yeah. And so, you know, bronze, when you, Over time, when you rub it, yeah. it gets like polished. Yeah. Like, yeah. So Benjamin Franklin's Glowing. head is, yeah. is brighter than the rest of the sculpture. Sure. So this Ronaldo statue oh, no. has a really big bulge in the <laughs> pelvis area. <laughs> you got to, I mean, if you Buff. Google it, yeah. if you Google like Ronaldo statue. We just yeah. lost bulge. all our listeners because their attention just got <laughs> right. diverted. Over yeah, there. they're all like checking out the, they're like, they're following right. Ronaldo. Ronaldo. <laughs> One of the 4.2 million searches that's yeah. happening well, this, this minute. This is why he Ronaldo has 205 bulge. million followers. So after our episode, he'll have 205 million and one. Yeah, but his, his statue, the bulge. Bulge is actually polished from all the people touching it yeah. and rubbing it uh, in well, okay. their photo opportunity. Let me tell you what that's about, all right? Uh, it's a cup. They wear a cup that <laughs> protects the jewels, okay? So, yes. Okay, good. Yeah. So, back Can to you your back super to your stimuli, yeah, Jason. Jason was trying <laughs> so, to say something. Sorry for that aside. You hijacked <laughs> my discussion item with a supernormal stimuli. I it's was, actually a good... I was competing for your attention. Yes, but that's the deal is like... You know, there is a wanderlust in humans. There is there's a there's a, a desire to seek novelty. We our dopamine system, you know, our reward system gets can get kind of bored in a sense. It can get we the same thing doesn't give us the same kick again, right? We can habituate. And so we look for new things to kind of get our jollies. And I think nowadays, boy, it's easy to do that compared to the past. So I, th- I thought a lot of what's going on is we're just like yeah. getting amped up on, well, uh, I've seen enough of, of that. I'm going to go see, look at this. And you just move on. There's, a, there's a positive feedback loop that happens with that, which is in a, in a landscape where it's harder and harder to get attention because there's so much information and noise right? yeah. in that competition that people will revert to things that, that trigger that dopamine rush right mm-hmm. that right. that novelty seeking it could be sex it could be violence it could be it could play on fear it could play on desire it could do whatever but it's it's going to this very base part of ourselves that gets the attention yeah right near, near and, death experiences and then because they see the success of that others are competing and and using those same techniques so you have this positive feedback loop where there's more of that happening that gets more and more rewarded, that creates more of that competition within that space, and we essentially get dumber, right? right? I think what you're talking about, Asher, is there's a flip side to it. I mean, there's this habit-forming thing, right, that you're talking about where you're after these dopamine hits, and you're avoiding boredom because you go to the next video, you go to the next social media post, whatever it is. Sometimes it even you know, does it automatically for you. You have like yeah. an oh, infinite... Oh, yeah, it will, it'll hap- happily do that for you. Yeah. Keep playing forever. And you got, you got an infinite, infinite set of possibilities to look at. So you, you no longer have to deal with boredom. You might think, oh, that's a good thing. But I, I think there's a downside because it's in those moments of boredom and quiet, especially for kids, that you come up with the most imaginative things. Like that's where... where games are born. That's where ideas about how the world works are born. And and I think if you don't have that space, 
you have a lot less creativity. Creativity and critical thinking. I don't think you can underestimate the importance of boredom from from that standpoint or or time to to ruminate. I mean, right. Think about Albert Einstein, theory of relativity. If Albert Einstein was born in this period, he'd just be watching cat videos. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's that may be not not fair, you know. It could like, be how that does the Al- cat land on his feet all the time. It could be that that Albert Einstein would be exposed at a younger age to information that would have led to, you know, mm. who knows. But but yeah, it's scary to think that without creating space for new ideas, we we don't have critical thinking, we don't have creative thinking. We're sort of locked into this reinforcing cycle. Yes, and we're getting hijacked with stimuli that are more and more extreme. So then you get this problem of anhedonia, right, where people like they have a hard time feeling pleasure anymore because they just they've been jacked up so much. It's almost like like withdrawing from drugs if you take this away. Yeah. So it, I think there's a lot of, of health impacts that happen where you 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 can't keep an, you can't keep your head on straight because you're constantly getting distracted. So there's a um, there's an anticipation that happens where you're almost like expect during the day to get get the stimulation, kind of the unanticipated reward, where at some point the phone needs to go off. There needs to be an alert that says, "Oh, I've got a new a new like to my post," or "I got a phone call," or "I got a new email." Um, that 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 is constantly interrupting, like what you're saying, the ability to stay in kind of a flow state or to just ruminate. And maybe we don't even know how to do that. But I think not being able to do that anymore, then it keeps us in a state of kind of stress where we're going to have cortisol and adrenaline in our body more than it should be. Yeah, we're, we're dealing with too much stimuli. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you right? can't possibly get to all the things that are competing for your attention. Yeah, right. you have email inboxes like a, like a share that is out of control. Yeah, you know, you can you get feel guilty. Everyone should feel bad. For well, you me. can get real world injuries from this too. Like texting while driving wasn't a problem in Albert Einstein's day. Now right. was it? <laughs> I mean, driving might not have even been around much, but yeah, uh, but yeah, it's, it's but yeah, and it does have. I mean, you you were just talking about this, Jason. It does have a real impact on people's productivity as well. Mm-hmm. There's some interesting studies that have been done looking at the impact of interruption and stimulus, some kind of distraction coming in on on productivity. And this one group of researchers, they said that it takes an average of 23 minutes and 15 seconds to get back to a task after having been interrupted. I'm so glad I didn't interrupt you because it would have taken us 23 minutes to get back to where you could finish this thought. that, I yeah. mean, when I first heard that number, I was like, that can't what does that possibly mean? be right. Yeah. But, so here's, here's what they're getting at. And, and the example that they gave, I thought was an interesting one, which was, you know, if you're, if you're sitting working on a task at your computer, like let's say at the office. Remember when people used to do that? They're actually in an <laughs> office together. What's an office? <laughs> um, and somebody came in to get your signature on something. That, that's not going to take you 23 minutes to get back to what you were doing before, right? That's because it's not something that's fully taking your attention away, reorienting it to a completely different right. project. Like if I, if I came in and I said, share, look at this near-death experience video. That would totally... Now it's going right. to take All maybe right. So if you're completely shifting your focus, I mean, there are things you could do. You could do dishes. You can, you can multitask on some level if it's using maybe different parts of your brain. You know, but if you're, if you're focused, you've got focused attention on a task, and yeah. then you have to take that focused attention and shift it to another completely different project or task, 
it can take a very long time to get back into that flow of focus yeah. with the original task, you know? And think about how many times we get interrupted every day. You know, so we think that the internet's making, in modern technology, are making us more efficient, more productive, but that's not necessarily true. The frog is really disagreeing with me. Yeah. On this. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to go silence the frog. I don't, you just got to wave, wave at it, maybe. Well, while Rob does that, let me circle back to why I wanted to bring this up, okay. you know, as, as a hidden driver topic, you know, for why we're in crazy town. And I think the big thing here is really that this diminished capacity for us to focus mm-hmm. keeps us from being able to concentrate collectively on what really matters. Right. I, right. I'm sorry. Uh, this is going to be a, an attention grabbing focus. thing. I, I just deflated manually, very gently. The throat bubble of a Pacific tree frog. You know, it actually it's, touched it's it? the male. Yeah. It's the only. It's the male that calls, and the males are smaller than the females. Yeah. They're, they're right there on yeah, their windowsill. There yeah. was a male and a female. Yes. And uh, yeah. Do you know what it's called when the male clasps the female uh, in the mating ritual? It, it's called Ronaldo's bulge. <laughs> <laughs> it's called amplexus. Wow. And they do that. They spend a long time together, usually at night uh, in near water. That's Here we we're, we're really competing for people's attention <laughs> with factoids now. This is good. You guys are proving my complete point with this episode. I, I am sorry. I, all I, of our attention I love the Pacific tree frogs, away. though. They're great. Yeah, they are. So okay. what I was saying, oh, Rob, you were saying, and you wandered off to to touch frogs <laughs> was Plexus. This has, I think, some really significant and somewhat hidden implications for. What's brought us to crazy town and how we're going to get out of crazy town. And that is that with so much of our attention and our focus being splintered and pulled in all of these different directions, it keeps us from concentrating collectively in particular on what really, really matters. Yeah, I think a clear example of that, it's, it's why we haven't done anything about climate change over the last 40 or 50 years. And even the, the people who are able to cast doubt on the science. They were using this uh, yeah. attention-dividing techniques to to get us to doubt that it was even a problem. But, you know, if, if you're spending all your time worrying or, or looking at uh, what this celebrity is doing or, or what this video is showing, you may not be paying attention to what's what, what really requires the attention. Yeah, and and the the collective piece to me is, I think, a really important piece of it. And not only is this this scarce attention economy, this competitive attention economy, keeping maybe us as individuals being less productive or less focused on things that really matter, it's the collective piece of it. It's so hard to get a consent, not even consensus view on what's important, but a kind of critical mass of attention and focus on things. And we're actually seeing... Even in the world of social media, these pretty worrisome trends where uh, there are these researchers in Europe who sort of looked at at Twitter hashtags, you know, mm-hmm. and the top trending hashtags. And in just a period of like th- three years, um, from 2016 to 2019, the amount of time like a trending hashtag spent, and, and those are oftentimes things that are are people sort of view as collectively important. You know, sometimes it might be Cristiano, right. you know, Ronaldo. <laughs> yeah, hashtag Paul, Ronaldo. Right. But Ronaldo oftentimes it's, it's meaningful and important things. Well, you know? and yeah, I mean, so the way that you're saying that 
hashtags aren't getting the the life longevity they used to. I know to. you're feeling bad about it, but oh. but I just mean in three years it's gone down. It's gone down. By, oh. From 19 hours to 13 hours, which oh. is, I know it doesn't sound like a lot, but... No, but I, I get the point. I'm being silly, of course. I mean, but. well, think, think about a, a really important issue. Like, yeah. I remember a few years ago, you know, anybody that's keeping track of things in the world of conservation and biodiversity knows that uh, species are, are taking a beating. And uh, everybody was concerned. But then a few years ago, you, you saw a news story about pollinators and insect populations crashing. Right. And that, that's like, you know, instead of a predator at the top of the, the pyramid, you're talking about stuff, base of the pyramid stuff. Right. And, so like hashtag insectageddon or whatever right, like that and, does not trend very long anymore. Well, and it, it didn't even, it's like barely a blip in the United States. Right. You know, it doesn't even last for one news cycle. Right. Okay. That I mean, sucks. it's hard enough to get attention at all on these existentially yeah. important things. But then even if you, you're able to get attention put on it, it okay. just goes away. Well, hold, you know? hold the fort for a second, guys, because this runs counter to, to stories we've heard from people who, like, you know, believe that the greatest resource is the human mind and that, you know, if we just had a billion Americans, for example, we could just solve more problems – Right, because we have more minds to solve problems with more people, more problems, more people, more problems, more people to solve problems. But what you're making it sound like is that we're actually not solving any problems. We're just watching cat videos and Ronaldo's junk. <laughs> it's like uh, uh, you have to question the time that we freed up. What, what exactly are we using that for? Right. Okay. So we like you're saying like. We're suddenly like the society where we don't have to toil in the fields, right? And so now we can think, we can, we can, we can learn, we can listen to our baby Einstein videos. People do that anymore? I don't know. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, but no, what's the, what's the point of having these, these special minds if we just ruin them, you know? God. Yeah. Well, it, it is a funny irony, funny, like, not really funny, but that... <laughs> Fossil fuels and modern technology freed us from toil, many of us, not yeah. all of us, many of us, from from hard toil, labor, and what are we doing with it? Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. well, I'm put in, I put in some hard labor on that tree frog over there, but uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of amazing that we, that, that we have so many choices and we choose what we do choose. I'm, I'm yeah, a little flat. I, I look at myself and get kind of a... Kind of a little like what? What did I just spend that hour on? I I do think though this has been an issue in the past where and maybe this is this is a, a bit of a paradox, but you know people have always come up with creative ideas. I mean, a, a lot of pe- even people that are watching cat videos today have have good ideas. But like Jason, when you were working the fields, uh, let's say you were doing this a few hundred years ago. I think you would have been yes. you would have been thinking about big things. You would have been considering. Uh, whatever planetary motion or so you could have come up with some great ideas oh but my god i know you're right i mean actually not jason somebody there, else maybe. somebody could have but no, you're out there doing physical labor and you're actually your mind is free in many ways it's almost like 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 doing the dishes okay for people who aren't working just you're doing like chores you're vacuuming you're doing the dishes you can think about all kinds of things because it's not a highly cognitive tasking activity right so i think you're right just because you're working 
physically all day long doesn't mean you aren't thinking about interesting things. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, one of the kind of, I guess, advantages of the internet age is you can share that widely, right. uh, you know, without without a lot of cost to you as an individual. I, th- I think that you can share it wisely, but you, when you enter into it, there are all of these temptations that keep you from from spending your time even coming up with those ideas in the first place, let alone sharing them. Yeah. You know, it's it's a it's very much a, a double edged sword. Yeah. You what know? we all think about the fact that the energy that is underpinning this modern lifestyle we have, the high energy modernity as we've talked about before in our show, that's waning. And it, this is all energy hogging zeta zettabytes. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe maybe people are going to need to have to spend more time actually thinking about taking care of the, their basics. And it doesn't mean they can't think and, and have great ideas and share them, but um, you just wonder, like, are we going to get weaned off of this sort of super normal stimuli? What's that going to be like for us, I wonder? How are we going to go through some kind of withdrawal symptoms as a culture? You, you could name this the age of the waning and the weaning. Hashtag that baby. (laughs) Stay tuned for our George Costanza Memorial Do the Opposite segment, where we discuss things we can do to get the hell out of crazy town. You don't have to just listen to the three of us blather on anymore. We've actually invited someone intelligent on the program to provide inspiration. Hey, Jason Asher, we've got a really good review this week I want to share with you. Uh, this is off of iTunes from Thunderzilla. That's a, uh, a listener of ours. It's a real Th- name. Thunderzilla. Right. I'm glad we're on their good side. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you don't oh, want to be on the bad side of Thunderzilla. Oh. So Thunderzilla says, I've learned so much while simultaneously laughing and crying. So often I feel like I'm the one who's crazy. But these three confirm I'm not the crazy one. It's everyone else and their fossil fuel guzzling, climate change denying behaviors that are crazy. Uh, so, for a second there, I thought they were going to say, uh, "I'm not the one that's crazy. These guys are the right, ones that are right, crazy." Right. <laughs> I'm very relieved to hear that it's uh, yeah, it's the rest of the world. Well, I, that, I'm I, glad we could feed into their confirmation bias. Yeah, I like that they say uh, that we confirm this for yes, them. Yes, this so, is perfect. Yeah, it's a it's a total confirmation bias. So anyone else looking to have your biases confirmed, come listen to us. And please, uh, in a moment of sincerity, do go out and rate and review us. We'd really appreciate that. And maybe we'll read your review on a forthcoming episode. Every decision I've ever made in my entire life has been wrong. My life is the complete opposite of everything I want it to be. If every instinct you have is wrong, then the opposite would have to be right. Okay, guys. So uh, what should we recommend to our listeners as a, as a do the opposite? Well, this is clear and easy, and this is the most important thing is immediately, everybody, Cancel subscriptions to all podcasts except ours. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, maybe maybe just cancel everything. Yeah. No, no. no. no Keep no, ours. I, I, right. Keep ours. Yeah. You can cancel Keep everything ours. else. No, um, I was thinking that there are techniques to limit interruptions if you really, and I struggle with this myself, but 
if you focus on creating sort of containers and boundaries for yourself, so limit how often you check your email, you know, at certain times of day, really scheduling your time and think about blocking out for things and then turning off distractions when you're when you're trying to especially do things that require sort of a higher level critical thinking that require more concentration. Yeah, and I, I hate to go the tech route, but sometimes there are apps that can help you. I remember when I was working on on writing a book and I needed to stay away from the internet for a while, I had this app that I could set a timer where it would uh, not allow me to get on the internet until that time expired. And oh, it, it was really funny. useful. I, th- I think we should up it up a, a little bit and create an app that actually gives people like a shock. Right. Yeah. To call get right. On the internet. Yeah. It just comes right out of the keyboard. And it's- <laughs> 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 yeah. No, I think that's pretty uh, pretty cool. That, although sort of hard to do. Like, I, I like the idea of a, sort of a container for email, but um, just trying to think in a workday how hard that might be for some people. Yeah, it, it obviously depends on what your situation is. Yeah. But yeah, but I find for myself, and I'm, like I said, I'm not very good at this, but I am much more productive when I actually turn my email off for certain periods of time. Because I see those notifications pop up and, and they find it very difficult not to, to get sucked in, especially when it seems like, oh, this might be timely. You yeah, know? yeah. No, That's why I didn't actually respond to oh, your yeah, email about you know your car on the side of the road. Yeah, well, at least the tow truck did, so, you know. Yeah. Well, I think another do the opposite, and this, is, this should be a, a, a healthy thing for everybody, is to put down the phone, put down the video, put the screen away, whatever, and get out in nature. Spend time in the outdoors. Forest bathing. Forest yeah. bathing. It's true. Actually, studies have shown that being in nature actually provides restoration to cognitive functions. It has an actual impact on, on people's brains, you know, and their ability to, to do higher level cognitive functions once they've been in nature, or even looked at nature. I think yeah. there's something about there's stimulation in nature, but it tends not to be of the kind that's overstimulating. So it's, it's almost like a Goldilocks level of of experiences you get I mean, in your senses. Unless you get attacked by an alligator or <laughs> yes, something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Well, or a bear, if we're talking about Goldilocks. <laughs> right, yeah, right. I guess that was the obvious reference. <laughs> you went for I need, I need to go spend some time in nature so I can think more clearly. <laughs> but I think the artificialness of our lives, like we live in these houses or these offices, when we used to go to offices or whatever, these, these sort of phony environments where you're not feeling the wind, you're not feeling the temperature extremes, you're not feeling the sun directly on you, you're not getting senses of smell, you're not seeing the complex patterns of foliage. It's like there's not the right normal stimulation. And then what we do is we put ourselves in front of a screen and when we're, when we're getting or, or listen, you know, earphones, where we're getting super normal stimuli. Yeah, yeah overstimulated. Overstimulated. So it's this weird thing for our brain where I think – we evolved in nature, and I think it provides kind of this like balanced it, stimulation. It's especially bad when I'm watching YouTube and snorting pixie sticks. You know, it's, it's, it's really bad. You mean, on the nature front, not only is it restorative for, for people, it's, they've actually done studies looking at, at group dynamics and the abilities for groups to find consensus or to come up with creative solutions. And they've studied groups in an artificial environment and groups in nature, like just sitting around together outside. And they found that actually being outside in nature as a group, making decisions or discussing issues is more productive. That's why those biosphere projects failed. They they were not really in nature. They were in the bubble. Well, I think we should lay down a little bit of a challenge rather than just say, go out in nature. How about for 
every hour or any amount of time that you spend on the screen for, uh, say, just entertainment or frivolous pursuit, you have to spend an equal amount of time uh, in nature. So, so you take the 153 minutes you spend on social media and then the two and a half hours you spend like watching videos yeah. and you add that together – that's about five hours. So you're telling me I have to be out outside from 9 p.m. to 4 a.m. Yes. every night? Yes, this is what we need to do. <laughs> okay. Let's do it. Oh, crap. All right, I'll do it if you guys do. I'm in. All right, I'll see you tonight. Yeah, I'll see you at the creek. <laughs> Jenny O'Dell is an artist, a writer, and an educator whose multidisciplinary work often stems from close observation and explores how attention or the lack of it leads to real shifts in everyday perceptions. In 2019, she wrote How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy, which is a wonderfully written and helpful resource for those of us struggling with the question of how to spend our time meaningfully and healthfully. Her work can be found at JennyOdell.com. Jenny, thanks for joining us in Crazy Town. Thanks so much for having me. So on this season of the podcast, we're talking about hidden drivers that are moving us to the precipice of environmental and social breakdown uh, or keeping us from acting collectively in ways that actually help. In this episode, Rob, Jason, and I talked about some of the higher level and kind of the collective role that exponential growth in demands for our attention are having on where we've landed, which we like to call crazy town. And in our Do the Opposite segment, we encourage listeners to use tools to better manage their time, to spend more time in nature, which is, I know, something that you feel strongly about yourself and do in your own life. And we even challenge them to spend an hour in nature for every hour that they sort of wasted away in social media or online entertainment, which may be too too, uh, steep a hill to climb, I don't know. But I just wanted to start for listeners who aren't already familiar with your book, if you could just talk a little bit about what you mean by do nothing and and why it's so important. Yeah, so I always have to specify that I don't literally mean doing nothing like lying on the floor in your home, uh, unmoving, yeah. although that's interesting, but... <laughs> interesting maybe for a little while. Yeah, it's it, basically it's nothing from the point of view of what we typically think of as doing something. So like having something to show for your time, accruing some sort of value to yourself or your sort of personal brand, you know, working like these, you know, this kind of traditional notion of productivity, doing nothing is basically anything that doesn't very easily or at all fall into that category. So like the easiest example I can give is like going for a walk versus trying to walk somewhere very quickly um, Mm -hmm. because you just need to get there. And it's one of the reasons it's so hard to define is that I think you can do a lot of the, the same things in either mindset and and you might not actually be able to tell which one you're doing. So like you can do any activity right. in a really strivey yeah. way or you can do it in a really kind of you know enjoyable contemplative way. I mean people make their hobbies stressful all the time. So it's like that's mm-hmm. one of the reasons it's kind of a subtle distinction, but but I think it has to do with a sort of a feeling of like curiosity, wandering, goallessness. Yeah, when I mentioned this uh, to my wife, she's like, I don't like to think of that as doing nothing. I think of that as like doing the most important something. Yeah, which she's right. Yeah. That is, it is, I mean, that's sort of my argument, right? But but I think that there's some use in embracing that in a sort of tongue-in-cheek way, like embracing that framing of it, because I'm, you know, it's just making me think of this, um, I know this artist who told me that she, 
I think like every Wednesday or something, she just kind of walks around town and doesn't really do anything else and that she loves it. And it's very important to her. And that she ran into a friend on one of these walks and she told her, oh, every Wednesday I do this thing. And her friend had this sort of quasi like disdainful reaction, which was like, oh, you must have so much time. You're wasting time. And like, so that's, that's kind of what I'm trying to imagine just being like, yeah, okay, I am quote unquote wasting time from your perspective. And like right. that doesn't, and then I'm trying to imagine a situation where that doesn't bother you. Right. Yeah. There's an intentionality to it, right? It's sort of saying, I'm going to have this experience. Maybe I have this experience all the time, but I'm going to do it in a way where there's intentionally not an expectation or something on that. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. And I mean, there's also intentionality in setting, I mean, assuming you have the privilege and the ability to do so, like setting aside that time or even just like making right. that decision for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. You've talked about what you like to do with your time. I mean, you, you're an avid bird watcher and, and I've, I've heard you talk about what you even get to experience in terms of nature in an urban environment that you live in. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I guess I'm curious because for me, the default is thinking about going out into nature and it's something that we actually advocate a lot on, on the show because our disconnection from nature is something that that we think is has profound impact on us as human beings, but not everyone has that luxury, right? So, mm. what do you say to people who are like, I, I can't experience nature. I'm I'm in this huge urban jungle or something like that. Have you dealt with that? I mean, there's like a couple of different things to say. I mean, I think that there are a lot of reasons why someone would beyond not having access. Like, there are plenty of reasons that someone might not feel comfortable. In the outdoors, I've been doing a lot of reading lately about national parks are very white spaces, for example. And so someone might not feel comfortable there. So there's all that kind of right. Like there's, I feel like in How to Do Nothing, I I was a little bit blithe about, you know, the park is a free space, but it's like, there's like, (laughs) there's a lot of things like structuring that and, and limiting that. But I would, I would say I haven't been to a ton of cities, but I do feel like in many cities there, there are sort of signs of life that you can find if you're looking for them that are super interesting. I'm just thinking of like peregrine falcons, for example, are are mm-hmm. birds that enjoy like cliff areas and they sort of interpret skyscrapers as cliffs. Yeah. And so you could be, you know, in San Francisco downtown and you might see like a peregrine falcon like hunting, which is just like insane. You know, they're like so fast and just yeah. really amazing birds. And even, you know, I I read David Sibley's new book last year, What It's Like to Be a Bird, I think it's called. And pigeons are super fascinating. Like, they're way more fascinating, way smarter than I realized. And even just kind of thinking about and learning about, like, why all of these, like, cave-preferring birds are now what we're used to because that's how cities are. It's just really interesting. So I think, like, even taking the, the issue of being in a city and there are the animals that there are there... And like taking that as like a point of interest rather than like, oh, it's so sad that I can't see quote unquote unadulterated nature um, is kind of one way to go about it. And maybe it's not just nature. It's just observe. It sounds like a lot of this is just being open to observation and curiosity. Yeah. And whatever happens to be there. I mean, one thing I feel really strongly about is I love going to these sort of like really, you know, grandiose places as much as anyone else like Yosemite or, you know, like Kings Canyon it's very spectacular and it's Mm -hmm. very memorable, but I, I think that there's like a risk that people sort of draw a hard line between that and kind of everything else. And particularly that their own neighborhoods as these kind of like 
degraded spaces that are not worthy of your attention. And there's like nature and then there's somehow like not nature or something. And I, I actually just wrote an essay recently about just learning about like the geology of my neighborhood and the fact that I live on a hill because there is an underground Creek down the street Mm. from me. And so the, the entire shape of my hill is determined by this water that I can't see because it's buried, but just Mm. knowing that and just doing like a little bit of extra work to find out why things are the way they are around you, even if, you know, unfortunately they're buried or they're hard to access. Yeah. I think this is probably the toughest thing to do in like suburban America or new development America where there isn't much history and there's so much kind of boring prescriptive design, urban design that's been put on place. But in, in older cities, I mean, you could, you talked about the topography of where you are, you can peel back layers of why things were built in the way that they were, you know what I mean? And I, I lived in Amsterdam for a while. And one of the things that, that we love to do, and a lot of people did, is just you walk around on the streets and you look in people's windows and people had a window that was kind of like their display window. And it was their way of expressing their personality and they would do it for people. And so it was just, there was always something new to discover because people were expressing themselves. We humans are nature too, right? So there's a lot just to be able to observe in terms of human nature. Totally, Um, yeah. So I guess I have two other questions. One is, what are your thoughts about boredom? You know, what would you say about boredom as a, a valuable thing to experience or not? A valuable thing to experience and how do you cultivate boredom yeah this is like one of those areas where it's like i i want to be like so careful not to like instrumentalize this idea of doing nothing right like which when i wrote the book i was like i know like people are going to try to turn mm-hmm. this into a productivity hack so i i'm i have to be very careful about this <laughs> yeah. idea which is that I, but i do feel that in my experience especially as an artist that like boredom is a sensation that comes before something really interesting just thinking back Mm -hmm. a moment of boredom is almost like you don't know it's not obvious what you should be paying attention to like nothing is sort of grabbing your attention which if you if you think about it like that's an incredibly interesting and like generative state to be in because it means that your attention could kind of go somewhere unexpected so i mean i think i have there's an epigraph in my book Mm -hmm. the john cage quote if you uh, try doing something that's boring, uh, I'm going to totally butcher this quote. Basically, like, try to do it two times and try to do it four times and try to do it eight times. And then, like, eventually you'll find that it's not boring at all. And so I mm-hmm. think that, yeah, again, like, I don't want to, like, put value on it as boredom is, like, the instrument by which you get somewhere interesting. <laughs> but but I do think that it is sure. an underrated state of being. And that's very kind of rare now because there's always things to entertain yourself with. Yeah. I think we're scared of being bored. Yeah. I think there's an anxiety that people have. Well, because I think, you know, it, it has to do with right now, there's always the potential for everything. It's like everything could be everything. That's what I've been thinking about lately is like, I've been telling myself like everything doesn't have to be everything. Hmm. And so if you know that you could be doing one in a list of a million things at any particular moment, the idea of not doing any of them or just, yeah, wasting time, being bored was probably always a, a bit of a, you know, I don't know how people felt about boredom in the past, but now I feel like it's tied up with this anxiety of like all of the things that you could could or should be doing. And I think that in terms of like cultivating boredom, I think... I think like cultivating boredom and actually a lot of the other things that I talk about in the book just have to do with like observing 
yourself and knowing yourself well enough that you know what kind of conditions and time is required for that. And then you just make sure to try to keep that in your life. It's like easier said than done. And I think it's really hard during the pandemic because for a lot of people, work and non-work are all on the computer and maybe in the same room. <laughs> like, you know, so so now it feels extra arbitrary, but right. you know, maybe maybe it gets a bit easier when that is not the case. I I think a lot of it's just about balance. We could romanticize boredom because it seems like it's it's something that few people give themselves anymore. But it does feel like we're we're largely imbalanced. As as adults, I think a lot of people feel like they can't give themselves permission to be bored. You're talking about the fear of missing out or something, you know, or the, of what I should be doing. I think for kids, you know, I've I've got two kids, and it feels like they don't they just simply don't know how to deal with being bored because there are devices, there are other things that that they could be doing, and. And I remember, I'm going to sound like an old crotchety man, but I remember just being out away from the house for hours and hours, just having to go entertain myself, you know, and the things that I got I gained from that, that I worry that a lot of kids don't get. Yeah. One thing that I, in that vein that I get sort of worried about is that, is this like capacity to find something interesting about the supposedly boring. I mean, that's kind of my whole artistic practice is, is that. And mm-hmm. there's this cartoon um, by an artist, Ad Reinhardt. It's like, I think it's from the 60s, 50s or 60s. And he's like pointing at an abstract painting. And he says, and he's saying like, ha ha, what does this represent? And then the painting points at him and says like, what do you represent? And he like falls over dead um, because he's so shocked. And I always show that to Mm. my students. And I tell them like, this is how I want you to approach like things in this class. But it's also kind of like how I want them to approach life, which is like, you have to meet it in the middle. Like you can't just be like sitting there waiting to be entertained. Like not that that's what they're doing, but I think that there is a mindset of I need to immediately grasp what the point of this thing is. I need to immediately grasp why it's interesting or why why I should be paying attention to it instead of, and if I'm bored, then I will just swipe to the next thing instead of like, if I'm bored, maybe I'm not asking the right questions or like, if I'm bored, maybe I don't have the right lens on this. I need to spend like two more minutes interrogating this thing. And, you know, maybe the abstract painting isn't stupid. Maybe I just need to look a little bit more. And so like, I, I think that's like one thing I'm really trying to encourage in the book, just like developing that capacity to ask like a few more questions from a couple of weirder angles. And I think that that's what to me often comes right after boredom or right after the potential for boredom. Mm -hmm. I think there's another element to this that I'll give the, the context of, of the issues that, that we, uh, we work on climate change and, uh, other kind of existential threats that we face. I think that I've seen a lot and I have this experience myself, which is there's either a tendency to completely obsess over those things and to occupy our attention that way, or to look for distractions because we can't look at it or deal with it. We don't know how to process it. And, So creating space to like sort of try to do neither of those things is scary because it might have to open us up to really maybe feeling what we feel about those things or living in a space of not having answers to them and being not necessarily okay with not having answers, but, but 
some somewhat accepting that this is not controllable completely. Climate change, for example, we can't control mm-hmm. it as individuals ourselves. And I and I do wonder, you know, part of what we talked about was with our collective attention being spent on kind of the most sensationalist things, you know, the things that get our dopamine up and whatever it is, hijack our attention, keeps us from focusing collectively on the things that really matter, like protecting nature, for example. But maybe the way that we're engaging with information even about these issues keeps us from really being in a place where we can think more creatively or come to a place where we're thinking about doing things differently. I don't know if that makes sense. But. Yeah, totally. I, I think so. I mean, I think it's like something I'm, I'm thinking about a lot with the book I'm working on currently, which is like in a time of such urgency, it can feel really counterintuitive to yeah try to create and maintain like spaces of like playfulness. Like it seems almost perverse, right? Mm-hmm. Um, given everything yeah. that's going on. And yet, like, those are the kinds of situations in which, like, experimentation flourishes and, like, yeah, as you said, different ways of thinking, different ways of approaching the problem. And then I would also add just, like, some kind of, like, emotional processing. Like, I recently went on a trip by myself. It was just for a couple days and I wasn't kind of looking at the news or anything like that or social media. And I went bird watching. This was in Pescadero. And I saw like a couple of dead shorebirds mm-hmm. unexpectedly. And like, I know that that's happening. I, I've read about it. I have never sort of wandered around and sort of come upon that though. And I was different. Mm-hmm. I was, I was alone. The feeling of it was very different than when I read a headline that's upsetting. It was saddening, but it was also saddening in like a, a whole, sort of like a whole body, whole person kind of way where I just really had to like sit there for a while and just have that feeling and feel like somewhat comforted by like the ocean being right there. Um, Mm -hmm. And just trying to think about like scales of time and what I had just seen. So that to me, I kind of put that in the same category where it's like, also there's just like mourning that needs to be done. Um, And these like bigger and more complex kinds of like emotions that to me feel very different than the kind of like quote unquote doom scrolling feeling. Right. Yeah. I think maybe if there's a theme that's common to all of this is just about creating the space, you know, creating the space to be bored, creating the space to observe things that we may, because we're so busy, we don't see creating the space to maybe feel things we're not allowing ourselves to feel. And it does seem like there's this sort of reinforcing loop where the more these realities are, are knocking on our door, the harder they are to process, the more compelling it is to look for distractions. And there are people out there, there are there are part the cogs in the machine that are actually creating those big systemic risks for us that are seeking to capture our attention for, for profit. You know, yeah. it just keeps feeding itself. So somehow yeah. we have to break that loop. Yeah. And I really appreciate the invitation that you you've put out to people to step back. And I and I also really appreciate the focus on I guess maybe on on doing it in a more practical or everyday level, you know, than just a theoretical way of thinking about it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, at the same time that I definitely have to acknowledge that, you know, time scarcity is very different for each person. And there's like, that's something I'm kind of 
again, trying to work more on in the current book, I do think that there is often a, like a little bit, at least a little bit of latitude that you have personally to decide to pay attention to something or not. I think you can admit both. There are these like external circumstances and also like the attention economy is like quite formidable in terms of like how it's designed. Like there are like very smart people who are working together for a lot of money to win this chess game against you (laughs) and your mind. So you can admit all of those things, but you can also, I, I think that there's like something really lovely and kind of like simple about that little space where you're like, Oh, I actually have a choice there that I didn't think that I had. Right. And I'm going to exercise that. And then sometimes it's the case that you, you use that to, as a kind of wedge to like pry open this little space. Then you have a little bit more and then you use the wedge some more and then you have a little bit more and then maybe you can try to create it for others and so on. Yeah. I like that. I like that a lot. It's a kind of a rebellious act. Yeah. In a, in a very yeah small and quiet way sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Well, Jenny, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And again, I want to encourage people to check out your work at JennyOdell.com. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Crazy Town. Yeah, if by some miracle you actually got something out of it, please take a minute and give us a positive rating or leave a review at your preferred podcast app. And thanks to all our listeners, supporters, and volunteers. And special thanks to our producer, Melody Travers. Well, you know, we had a show about... uh attention spans and supernormal stimuli and just how crazy it is nowadays to just not get drawn in. But there is there is help. And we got a product this week that we're really proud of, uh, smart cones. And I know, Rob, you've been... Wait, you've smartphones? Been, no, smart cones. Oh. Smart cones. Rob, you've been trying it. So you know, what's your experience? Has it helped you? Oh, uh, well, help is kind of a, a, a big word to use. Let me just describe what happened. So I, I got them in the mail. I unboxed them. I was filming it just in case I wanted to upload it to my YouTube page. Right. And uh, so I I get this thing. I get them out of the box. They're these like little – they almost look like little lampshades. And you set them down on your your table and and the directions say slide your hands into these. And when I did, it kind of locked onto my wrist. Right. And it said, speak your time. And I said, an hour? Oh, you said an hour? And – Oh. And so these things locked on to my wrist for an hour, and uh, it, it's like the it was like the the cone you put on your dog after it has surgery. I couldn't type, I couldn't browse the internet. I couldn't, oh my god! I couldn't work a mouse or my phone. Yeah. for an hour until these uh, smart, smart cones, cones let go. So yeah. I guess I guess they helped in that sense. Would you go take a walk or something? <laughs> what did you do for that hour? I just cried. I oh. cried. Well, the problem is that he he. Actually, need to go to the bathroom. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, how do you wipe? Well, that didn't stop me. I just went. <laughs> Always comes back to that, doesn't it? You guys, you guys had to take it to where I soiled myself. <laughs> smart cones. I'm sure go smart cones really loves this. <laughs> well, that's ad. the motto. That there is smart cones. Go to the potty first. <laughs> Worst ad read of all time. <laughs> Crazy town. Da, 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 da. Crazy town.